This week, Amazon Vice President Tim Bray resigned after the company fired some US employees for organizing a protest over working conditions in their warehouses. They're not taking care of us. We're not safe. We are walking out until our demands are met. The PPE is scarce. It doesn't protect us at all. In the UK, Royal Mail workers staged walkouts over a lack of PPE and social distancing. And they don't now have the necessary protection to carry out their jobs. It's almost impossible to social distance inside delivery depots. Between the lack of PPE for key workers, growing numbers forced onto universal credit, and worries about worker safety, both now and after lockdown, there's plenty to be angry about. Describing the continued shortage of PPP as a national scandal. This is an extraordinary deluge of people who are trying to get access to universal credit. Workforce could be put back to work in dangerous circumstances and put themselves at risk. So, has COVID-19 led to a new wave of organising? What does organising look like under lockdown? How does the boom in mutual aid networks fit into all of this? And will the demands made during the pandemic lead to lasting change once it's over? On this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we'll be looking at what lockdown and the pandemic mean for organising. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, we're joined down the line by Becky Winson, Senior Organiser at NEF. Hi, Becky. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for being with us. So we're going to start off with a, a full disclosure of mine. I'm sure some of the listeners will know, but I work at NEON, the New Economy Organisers Network, which is kind of a sister organisation to NEF. And we do lots of stuff over there on movement building and organising. So I felt like I needed to kind of disclose that about myself and my identity before we launched in under false pretenses. Is that okay for you, Becky? That is fine for me. I'm really happy to be on this call with you. Okay. Amazing. All right. So let's start with a basic question. You're an organizer and we're going to be talking about organizing in this episode. Can you explain what organizing means and why it's important? So organizing has loads and loads of different definitions. There's loads and loads of different models. Can sometimes be like too wound up in explanations about what it is. But basically, the simplest way of describing organizing is that it is people coming together and using like the resources they've got and the power they've got through relational power, like their relationships and their collective power to make change. And that can be anything from a union organising in a workplace for improvements in pay and conditions to what Extinction Rebellion are doing in terms of like organising around environmental concerns or it can just be you know a bunch of people coming together to get much smaller changes made like they might want improvements to their street outside where they live all right and why does it matter why have you chosen to make organizing your life's work um I ask myself that all the time so I mean I chose to make it my life's work because I got organized and it changed my life so I was in a workplace where we weren't being treated very well I became the union rep for that workplace or one of them and turned from someone who was very shy into the loudmouth that I am now (laughs) Um, and I think that's a really important part of organizing to draw up really which my earlier explanation didn't quite touch on which is that when it's done at its best organizing doesn't just improve someone's pay it doesn't just make 
every worker in a workplace get extra holiday or whatever the change might be, it changes those people who are involved in that process as well. So it gives them more power, it gives them more agency, it gives them more confidence. And the reason why it's so important is because without that power base existing across society, in workplaces, in communities, working class people and communities who face oppression and discrimination are much more likely to get exploited and screwed over because the power balance is so out of whack. Brilliant. A fantastic introduction. Thank you so much. All right, so now we know what organising is and we've got a sense of it, we've got a feel for it. Let's get the lay of the land with some examples of organising that you've seen since the start of the crisis. So I want to kind of like hop from place to place. So let's start off with the workplace. Have you seen anything specific happening in light of the lockdown in workplaces? So there's been the walkouts in Royal Mail offices and some in hospitals, which you touched on in the introduction. There's been like a staggering amount of the CWU Royal Mail walkouts across the country with postal workers refusing to work because they're being put in such unsafe conditions. There have been walkouts in other countries, like you touched on Amazon. There's also been Brazilian healthcare workers and healthcare workers in Pakistan walking out of their workplaces. The most interesting bit of workplace organising that I've seen, I really, really liked. It was a few weeks ago now, and it was in Croydon. It was the Pizza Hut workers who organised a demo over unpaid wages. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Tell me about it. So basically, Pizza Hut franchise owner had just not paid anyone, like very simply. Like none of the workers had got any wages Lockdown had started, so they were unable to pick up work from anywhere else while they were waiting for these things to be paid, and they had no money. And in a normal situation, you know, the process would be quite simple. You would immediately sort of like get the union on the line. If you didn't have a union, you might form one. You'd, you know, get a protest going outside your workplace, and you would do all sorts of direct action as if you needed to escalate it. In lockdown, obviously, that's all a bit more tricky because we're not allowed to go out of our houses unless it's essential. But basically, what they resorted to doing after building up like a a lot of heat around this on social media was they got anyone in Croydon who was up for supporting this to come and do, within socially distancing, their daily exercise, like around Croydon Pizza Hut, and just like (laughs) put that out there on social media and raise a stink about it. And I thought that was like such a good example of thinking outside the box and not being scared to like stick to the basic principles of this which is taking direct action when you can is still going to be the most important thing to do lockdown or no lockdown yeah and I loved the exercise bit of this you know it was like people keep safe but people keep fighting Well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people are taking the kind of few things that we are allowed to do, whether it's like exercising, sewing masks, like doing drop-offs for self-isolating folks, whatever, and making them into the actions themselves, exactly as you said. I think one other thing that I've noticed is that people are also in the kind of more traditional like organizing spaces or activist spaces are kind of using this as a time to be like, okay, well, now we're all locked into our houses. How can we 
use this as an opportunity to kind of take stock and like maybe write down some of our resources and tools and tactics and like put them online, run kind of online teachings and webinars and stuff to skill people up. So I feel like it's also being used as an opportunity in workplaces and particularly workplaces, I guess, where there's more organizing or activist practice happening already to do some of that kind of embedding and disseminating of knowledge, which is also super exciting. Yeah. So I've been doing organizing through NEF and a bit on the side as well. And people have got the time to like do this training that they wouldn't have normally been able to find the time to do. The first bit of organising that I took part in after lockdown was there was a huge, huge international call for trainings run by Jane McAlevey and the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. And it was amazing to see so many people from across the world taking the time to like engage with this material and it being put out there and it being put to work or even if it was just being stored, you know, in someone's brain for when the lockdown finishes and we all go back. I think the other thing that it has done, and I think hopefully one of the lasting effects of this will be that the institutions and the groups, which maybe their structures were a bit resistant to online methods or it had been sort of dismissed a bit as armchair activism, are really starting to see some of the benefits that that brings so I mean I found it so much easier for example it's leveled like the childcare issue because everyone is suddenly accepting of the fact that people have got to deal with the small kids in their houses but also like those usually women can participate as fully in those meetings as they've ever been able to this has always been an option for trade unions for climate groups for whoever it is to open up that space and be like, if you can't get childcare, then you can call in from home or we will make allowances and we will like have the kids in the meeting with us. We'll accept it's a bit of a disruptive force because we want you in the room. And I hope the lessons that people are learning about this technology and how it can bring more people into these spaces will be learned and they'll stick around because I think that's been one of the silver linings of all this. Mm. We're going to circle back to the silver linings as well at the end, because I'm sure that there's a bunch more. But I wanted to stick with kind of the organizing innovations uh, that you've seen. And I was wondering if there's any in, more in the community space. So obviously, we've talked a lot already about what's going on in workplaces. But yeah, also in communities, is there anything particularly you've noticed? I mean, we've got to mention the mutual aid groups, right? In my head, innovation is perhaps like the wrong word to describe it, because the things that I've been most impressed by are people really going back to the basics of what organizing is so I've seen people being like isn't it amazing that street can have its own whatsapp group and we can organize mutual aid on there and like isn't it great that we can have a facebook group and it's used to sort of like speak for the community and it's admined by people from across it and whatever and it's like this was always possible and this is also like the basics of what organising is, which is putting people into a collective space in an accessible way as possible, and that collective voice being where the power comes from. So I'm struggling to think of anything that I've seen that I've been particularly like, oh my God, I've never thought of that before, you know? It's just that this moment has given people the time and the necessity to put it into practice. 
Well, I'd just like to talk a little bit more about mutual aid networks because obviously they've kind of had this big moment in the sun of everyone like pulling together to get groceries to people and medication around and stuff. And I think a couple of things for me have come out of that. One of them is that we're kind of relearning what it means to be in a society together, to be in community together, to support each other in all these ways that, as you say, may not be new and it's not novel to be like, oh, well, now we could all be in a WhatsApp group. But it feels like there is some kind of collective consciousness raising around the necessity and possibility and kind of like, I guess, for lack of a better word, goodness (laughs) of that. And that to me feels like something which might have a long-term benefit in terms of shifting the public narrative around what it means to be in community and I don't know if you would agree with that I think I would agree with it so I've now been organizing for about 10 years and one of the biggest obstacles to getting even yourself like motivated to organize or be organized certainly getting another group of people you're trying to work with motivated is that there has been a sustained attack on various forms of community and workplace power for like decades. We don't need to go into that. Like it's an accepted fact. That's what's happened. And because of that, there is a lack of immediate examples that people can think about and be inspired by when someone on their street or in their workplace or from an outside body says, you know, like you guys can come together and you can do something great. It's like, well, you know, I've, I've heard about this story from the eighties But, you know, I've never seen something like that happen to me in my lifetime or to my friends in my lifetime. And I think what the mutual aid groups have shown is that that collective power is still there, that that collective power doesn't depend on like a certain political context. That collective power depends on people using it. And that memory will take a very long time to fade. And like the trust that has been built up amongst people and their neighbours and people who they would never have met from their own towns and communities, that will be very difficult to break as well. And I'm actually really excited to see like what comes out of that. Mm. I mean, me too. I've just moved to a new house at the start of all this and I now know the people on my street, which I don't think I ever would have if it wasn't for this. And I I think, you know, I agree that that is the good side to all of this. And I think the mutual aid networks, just in terms of what they've taught us about ourselves and each other are incredibly important lessons to learn, especially when we're embedded within a society and a kind of culture and a way of being that teaches us that actually that's not the way that we should be relating to each other. I think on the kind of, I guess, the darker side of it, one of the concerns that I've, you know, heard voice and shared myself is the kind of danger of mutual aid groups emerging to fill gaps in the government's, you know, very threadbare safety net and how we then stop the mutual aid groups from turning into the new big society. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree that that's a danger. I think there's a narrative that is being built up really heavily. It's like piling on as the days go on, which is that people who are having to perform these tasks and having to support their neighbours and fill gaps in the care system and whatever it might be are sort of heroes, as if people have done this willingly and people have chosen to do this and... They should be celebrated for it. Of course they should. But the sort of heroism narrative is a really dangerous one because it says that there is such thing as society, but like what that society is, is that society 
supports itself and it has the minimal amount of help from the government and it has the minimal amount of rights at work and it has the minimal amount of control over its own community and it's that's all okay because people will get through because your neighbours bought you a can of beans and the only way that can be countered I think is by there being a, a fairly like concerted and organized effort to like push back against that narrative and for me that effort can't be sort of run by the usual suspects and the outside agencies and NGOs that usually have a voice over these things it has to also include those people in those mutual aid networks who maybe for the first time have seen the holes that are in what is left of our safety net at the moment you know there's been so many people in my mutual aid group for example being like I didn't realize universal credit was this low what do you mean people have had to survive on this for years and years this is horrific this is awful you know and I think bringing those voices out and letting people tell their stories about how they found all this is is the way to counter some of that Mm, Yeah, because I think one of the things that I wanted to pick up also from what you said at the top about organizing in general, was that one of the kind of sticky points that I've often had with the way that people talk about and sometimes practice organizing is this idea that it is a kind of politically neutral tool, that it's, you know, it's a way of kind of building power in people, but to what end is the bit that we don't fill in. And I obviously know through the work that you do at NEF that it's clear that you have lots of politics around what's in that blank space. But I think an issue that I've often come up against, and I think is coming up again around this mutual aid thing, is exactly that point of can organizing be used as a kind of uh, way of empowering people? And I'm I'm doing air quotes, you can't see me, but uh, empowering people to kind of step in where the government's failed and contribute to this overarching narrative that we're all in it together, but actually just to kind of underpin an austerity agenda going forward and to meet immediate needs. So yeah, I wonder if you had any kind of like bigger thoughts on the idea of organizing as a politically neutral tool. So, I mean, I really struggle to sort of agree with people who say that, you know, organising in its purest form has no agenda whatsoever and no one who does it properly would ever think of such a thing as starting to organise with an idea in mind about what they wanted the end result to be. Organising to me has always really been about building working class power. You know, the change I want to see is that we live in a far more equal society And as part of that, the working classes and people who face oppressions have got to build more power in order to balance things out. The thing that I would say is that organising is a tool and tactics from it and the methods from it can be used by pretty much anyone. Um, Mm -hmm, Right and left. (laughs) Right and left. And like some cases, the right use those things a lot more effectively than the left do. So you know, we had it with the big society. We had it with community organising initiatives that I think it was the coalition government, actually, or maybe the early years of Cameron's government, they set up. And it is them using it as a way of saying, well, you know, organised communities are brilliant because what that means is that we can reduce the number of whatever it is, care workers, nurses, doctors, firefighters, all the various bits that hold up the safety net and the infrastructure of the UK, because people will just come and do this work for nothing and they'll volunteer to do it and maybe some charity will give them 
a few grand a few times a year to keep the office running. And that has been done before. It's still being done in this country at the moment. And we have got to be really careful about buying into that narrative. The left has got to reclaim organising as our thing, basically, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I agree. And I think that that is really it, isn't it? That's the crux of it. And that for me is what services around the intersection of organizing and mutual aid in this moment, which is how do we have a, a kind of mutual aid practice that is embedded within its historical legacy? So at Neon, we just did a bunch of workshops and we had a really amazing lecturer called Sayo Graydon who came and ran a, a workshop for us on the history of mutual aid and kind of really emphasizing that it is embedded in these radical leftist political projects like the Black Liberation Movement and the gender rights movement and the movement for LGBTQIA people, et cetera, et cetera. And that when we take it out of that context and we use it in this kind of like big society way, it actually really poisons the well of what it is that we're actually trying to achieve and all the ideology around it as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about tactics a bit more specifically. So I know we kind of shared some examples of some things that folks were doing and you raised a really important point around people kind of making their organizing much more accessible in this moment. So whether that's for people with caring responsibilities or different access needs who can't physically get to a meeting, et cetera, et cetera, which is really great. And what I'd love to hear about is where are the areas where you can see those tactics potentially falling short or like still not managing to reach people and how that might be playing out across different movement spaces. So just to kind of give an example of that, one of the things that we've noticed at Neon is that in, for example, the climate space, there is a lot of that. There's a lot of people going online being like, let's do learning and growth and let's have meetings and bring people in. And there's often a lot of more resource in that movement to do that as well. Whereas in movements like the housing movement and the migration movement, because there's such a challenge to people's daily material needs. So whether it's literally a roof over their head, access to vital services, recourse to public funds, all those kind of things, it's a whole different moment where the challenges are really different. And I'm just wondering if you've seen anything along those kind of trend lines based on different movements. Yeah. So I think before I was on this podcast recording, I was on a Zoom call with a group of residents in Druid's Heath, which is an estate in Birmingham, which is being really terribly treated by Birmingham City Council. And because of how Birmingham City Council have treated that estate over decades, and because of how the government have treated estates like Druid's Heath over decades, people on estates like that are not as able to take part in this like online Zoom meeting culture that we're all banging on about at the moment and some of us are sick of because basically like lots and lots of them don't have reliable internet, if any internet at all. The ones that do don't necessarily have a webcam on their laptop or a reliable one on their phone and that excludes them from like so much of what is going on. You know, elderly people as well are going to be left behind by some of this. And there is a real sort of assumption that I'm noticing across movements at the moment that everyone has that access. And also that everyone who does have childcare problems or is having to look after their kids at the moment is living with a partner who can take the kids, you know, for that hour while someone's on a call, rather than someone who's a single parent and has got one kid, two kids, however many kids, and has to keep them occupied as well as being on a call. And I think there's no easy way around this because the way that you would reach those people otherwise is to do leafleting. 
But Zoom lets you dial in to Zoom calls. Like you do not have to be in front of a webcam to take part in this. I've not really seen that much emphasis being placed on that so far. And I know it makes it a lot easier for some people to take part. The other thing I've seen quite a bit of is within some of the mutual aid groups, because of the inequalities in society that already exist, the people who are most likely to be able to do that mutual aid work and carry it out are those who've already got a certain degree of privilege. And that doesn't mean that those people shouldn't be carrying that out and shouldn't be you know, using that privilege for good by being the ones who can go and do shopping for other people and run the sort of like pop-up food banks and facilitate the WhatsApp groups or whatever. But some of the voices that I've seen out there and some of the sort of dynamics that I've seen online about who's speaking up for mutual aid groups it doesn't seem to represent the diversity of the people relying on those mutual aid groups. And, you know, I'm quite heavily involved in my local one and I feel like we've got a quite good record of letting people have a voice in that group and running it safely, but also running it accessibly. What I really think is probably needed in a lot of mutual aid groups is that focus on as well as using it as a platform to help people's immediate needs also trying to think about how it can be used as a way to like develop some people's leadership skills and give them the confidence to take part in these groups and be the voices of those groups not the sort of like middle class activist types working for their neighbours nearby in social housing. I think it's also a, a fantastic plug because uh, next, I think it's next week, actually, 12th of May at Neon, we're doing a webinar on mutual aid and anti-oppression. So exactly that. So I would encourage people who are interested in that to sign up because that's led by a really amazing anti-oppression expert, Nim Ralph. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree with how those patterns are showing up. And I think it's really important that we kind of are adding these nuances to the conversation because we're at a precipice. Obviously, it's such a dangerous moment when it's kind of all to play for. We could easily fall into that to all the traps that we've been mentioning. I have one or two more questions. The next one is just on essentially like what this will mean. So you've, you've touched upon it a couple of times, but what are we learning about organising and what do we need to remember going forward? So I think what we're learning about organising is that it can be done under the most difficult of conditions, which means there is no excuse for not doing it when we go back to normal quotation marks. So we've learned it can be done under the toughest conditions. I think it can be done under the toughest conditions by sticking to the basics of organising. So valuing collective power, not doing things for people when they can do it themselves, embedding anti-oppression ideology in your organising, like having a long-term like sustainability goal and an end target in mind when you start off. I think the other things we've learned about organising is that there are ways of organising which certain movements and certain groups and movements were writing off online calls, phone calls, um, online organising, social media, all of that, I think, I will never say it should replace, you know, face to face on the ground techniques. But I think if it gets more people involved in activism and organising, then we should be making greater use of it. 
I would just really, really love, for example, to see like trade union branch meetings opened up to being online more often. I would really love to see environmental groups thinking more about how they expand their movement into more working class communities by doing some online organizing. And basically, like I would really love to see people with disabilities and people with caring responsibilities more involved in organizing full stop because they are excluded from a lot of the spaces that I've been in in the past and there's no excuse for that. I think the other thing that we've learned about organising is that a lot of the communities and types of people that very tired um, organisers write off as being difficult to organise and impossible to get active that is no longer true. Those mutual aid networks some of them are set up by activists Lots of them sprung up out of people who just wanted to help their communities and do it because they care about what's going on in their neighbourhoods and their towns. And so, yeah, I just wanted to raise that. What this has shown us is like organising techniques can be used and applied by people who've got little experience of this so far. And those people want to learn and we should be reaching out to them. Mm, Exactly. Um, Okay, so let's just talk quickly about how we turn some of these organised moments into specific policy change. So thinking about the exit strategy that will be announced at some point, unions have already expressed concern about the risk to workers who are returning to work. We've also heard on this podcast, but also generally about housing and how there's likely to be a massive spate of evictions off the back of this. What are the things that you think we should really be looking out for and trying to take action on around policy change off the back of this crisis? So I think there's going to be, and there's this has already started with the narrative that came out in PMQs about ending furlough and disability benefits still being very low about the deserving and undeserving poor. We're going to have to really watch out for that narrative. We're going to have to really watch out for a massive programme of austerity to pay as the government keeps saying, like, pay for all of this. That's how they're explaining it. You know, we've helped you all. Now it's time to pay. There is little discussion about who is going to pay because it's obviously, it's not going to be the 1%, is it? So we're going to have to watch out for that, like, big counter-narrative. We're going to have to watch out for the policies of austerity, which pre-election, at least that was being paid lip service to ending, it's now going to be back on the cards as an acceptable thing. And there has to be like a joined up and collective response from those opposing that to push back against it. One of the things that was really missing, I felt graduating into the middle of the 2008-2009 recession was like a joined up response to this, a joined up voice. And where there were joined up voices, what was missing and what will be needed in order to enact any policy change, certainly any sustainable policy change, is power. And organising is all about power, right? Like that is the point, you're you're doing it to build up power to get what you want. Mutual aid groups, workers groups that have come together out of this, neighbourhoods that have suddenly got organised, all of those need to be thinking, and I know this is going to sound knackering for some of them listening to it, like, We don't need to be thinking about what we can do to sustain this activity up to the end of lockdown. What is far more important is sustaining it past the end of lockdown, because that is when people are going to have to start organising strikes if they need to, to start organising against 
the program of austerity that is going to hit us if we don't get organized Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, a brilliant point to end on. And I, I think, you know, I would just say from what I've seen as well, that there are a lot of amazing organizations that are already doing this, but the people who are working on, in particular, those kind of policy changes, and really, you know, in that part of what we would call the movement ecology around really shifting the legislation on this kind of stuff, need to be reaching out to the grassroots, reaching out to folks who are organizing to mutual aid groups, to also draw on that learning and to build power together, because because it's only when you know all those different agents actually come together and and start to collaborate that we see real change. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Surprising. We agree. Amazing. So that is all we've got time for this week, lovely listener, but if you're desperate for more, we'll be following up this discussion in an online briefing over Zoom on Thursday the 14th of May. We'll be talking to Becky again as well as author and journalist Sarah Jaffe, mutual aid organizer Minda Burgos Lukes, and teacher and rep for the National Education Union Vic Chechi Ribeiro. Keep an eye on our social media or sign up to our mailing list for updates on that and we'll include the links in the podcast notes as per. Becky Winson, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Uh, they can go on my Twitter account, which is just at Rebecca Winson. And there's links to lots of my stuff on there. I also wrote an essay in a book a few years ago called Know Your Place, published by Dead Ink Press. So you can read about me more in there if you like. Fab. Thank you so much, Becky. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. Stay safe.